Right. Hey, good morning. Welcome to Trinity Community Church. It is really, really good to see you. I'm glad that you are here. Last week, we started a new series in the book of Galatians. And Galatians is one of the most influential pieces of writing in human history. We talked about last week how a young priest named Martin Luther in the 16th century was discontent with the religious status quo. And he was reading the book of Galatians when he had an awakening around the grace of God. This led him to an internal renewal that led to the renewal of many churches and places all over Europe, a thing that we call the Reformation. Now, 200 years later, the same thing happened again. In the 1730s in England, there was a group of college students at Oxford, and they were trying to take life more seriously, and they were trying to figure out life, and so they started getting together to to read things and study and and to pray and try to find their way in their faith. And one of them was a, a young guy named William Holland, and William Holland came across a little booklet called Martin Luther's Commentary on Galatians. Now, this is probably going to sound like the nerdiest thing ever, but he brought this commentary to the study group, and he began to read it out loud in the group. But something happened when he read these words. In Christ Jesus, there is no law, no sin, no sting of conscience, no death, but perfect joy, righteousness, grace, peace, salvation, and glory. Why do we work nothing for the obtaining of this righteousness? I answer nothing at all. For the nature of this righteousness is to do nothing, to know nothing of the law or of works, but to know and to believe this only, that Christ has gone to the Father, that he sits in heaven at the right hand of his Father, not as a judge, but as our wisdom, righteousness, holiness, and redemption. And when William Holland read these words of Luther out loud to the group, he said it was like a great burden was lifted off of him and like a fire fell in the room. All the men in the little study were, were overwhelmed with an awareness of God's love for them and his, his grace towards them. And they immediately went out and started to share this little booklet with people in the dorm and then around the city and, and so on from there. And in that little study group were John Wesley Charles Wesley and George Whitfield. And over the next few years, they would go out into the countrysides and preach in fields because the churches could not contain them and they weren't ordained anyway, so they couldn't. But they were preaching to tens of thousands of people at a time. And within maybe a decade, there were about a million people who had given their lives to Christ. It's what we call the Great Awakening. And in Christianity, we are always in need of our own Great Awakening in our hearts and in our lives. And in the same way, our churches and our ministries and our cities are always in need of another great awakening. And the only way for that to happen, the only path to that kind of awakening is a rediscovery of the grace of God. And it's not by our our merits or our works that we are saved, but rather entirely by God's complete acceptance of us in Christ, our we saved. What we need is a grace awakening. And so that's actually what we see in the life of the Apostle Paul in Galatians 1 this morning. He has a grace awakening in his own life, and then that spreads from him to create a grace awakening in the lives of other people. So there are three dynamics we're going to look at this morning. Paul's calling, Paul's mission, and then ours, our calling and mission. So Paul's calling, Paul's mission, and then our 
calling and mission. So we'll pick it up with Paul's calling. And he, he tells the story in our text a little bit, but he totally, it's totally described in Acts chapter 9. So in Acts chapter 9, uh, Paul, his actual name was Saul at the time. He was probably in his early 30s. And this is about a year or so after Jesus' resurrection and ascension back into heaven. And Saul's job as, as a Pharisee, as a Hebrew religious leader, was to hunt down converts to Christianity, arrest them, and then bring them back to prison in Jerusalem. So the early church was starting to, to scatter all over the world, and he would hunt them down. And one time on a trip to Damascus, it says this, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. It says the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they didn't see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could not see anything. So they led him by hand into Damascus. And for three days he was blind and did not drink or eat anything. So you can imagine the, the terror and the confusion for Saul in this moment. He sees this light, he's thrown on the ground, and then Jesus appears to him and says, you are persecuting me. Like when you mess with Jesus's church, you're actually messing with him directly. And hopefully you take some comfort in that already, that when anybody opposes you, they're directly opposing Jesus. Jesus so identifies with you that that's true. And then after three days, which is sort of a parallel of death and resurrection or a, a period of purification, the Lord Jesus appears to another person, Ananias, who was in Damascus. Ananias was a believer. And Jesus tells Ananias that there's a man named Saul, and I want you to go and pray for him. And Ananias is like, I know who Saul is. And like, Lord, this feels like a bad idea. <laughs> so Saul is so well known that the mere mention of his name strikes fear into Ananias. He's worried that he's going to get thrown in jail. But this is what Jesus says in verse 15. Go, for this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name among the Gentiles. And so Ananias goes and he finds Saul and he prays over them, over him. And it says immediately scales fell from his eyes and he could see again. Saul is baptized. He has something to eat. And then he remains in Damascus for a while, probably just to like get his wits about him, right? Now, if you're a student of the Old Testament or a lover of the Old Testament, you will recognize that this is a, a classic old school, Old Testament prophetic calling. So throughout the Old Testament, when God wants to do something new, he often raises up a prophet to be sort of his messenger and his mouthpiece to the people. So you see this in Moses. He's out in the wilderness. God speaks to him through a burning bush. Moses hits the ground, and then God tells him what he is to do to go to Pharaoh and set the people free. Samuel was sleeping, and three times an angel calls out to him by name until finally Samuel responds, Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Ezekiel's book opens with this vision of the heavens opening up and then a, a windstorm comes and God speaks to him out of the windstorm. Ezekiel hits the ground and God says, here is what I'm going to have you do. 
Maybe the most famous one is Isaiah. Isaiah gets this vision of the glory of God with angels and these creatures flying around the throne room. Isaiah hits the ground and then an angel comes to him and anoints his lips and says, go, here's the message you're going to tell people. And so there's a pattern here, right? God appears, you know, somebody hits the ground So Moses hits the ground, Ezekiel hits the ground, Isaiah hits the ground, Samuel is already on the ground, you know, he's just lying there. And then God speaks. And often the person is is either blinded or muted or rebuked or swallowed by a big fish, like he's got a few different things he can use. But then he calls them, calls them to a task, gives them a mission, says, go, here's what I have for you. And so Saul is called to a type of prophetic ministry in the same way in Acts 9. God draws him in because he's going to send him out. He reveals himself to the man because the man is going to reveal God to the people. And it's why he writes to the Galatians in our passage, verse 11. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. And I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation through Jesus Christ. Now, Paul's calling as an apostle and a leader of the early church was being being questioned and was being challenged. And so he's reminding them of this story that he would have told them when he was with them years ago in Galatia. So when I became a pastor, I was ordained and installed in a church first in Louisville, Kentucky. It was October 25th, 2011. The elders laid hands on me and installed me as pastor. That's something that we do here. We install pastors after a great deal of training and prayer. And there's, that's exactly what, what we should do. And yet what Paul is saying is that I didn't get my ordination in the same way as everyone else. Like Jesus appeared to me and made me an apostle directly, which if that happens to somebody, I'm like, I liked my ordination service. That's a lot cooler. So if we're going to challenge something like Paul's saying, look, And how Jesus came to me in the first place. And so there's no calling in scriptures without a mission. And that's the second thing. Paul's mission. He writes in verse 15. But God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. And so remember the context from last week. Paul had started these healthy, vibrant churches all over the region of Galatia, which is now modern Turkey. He had been there for two years. The church was flourishing. He established little communities with pastors to serve each one of them. And then he moved on to the next place. But as soon as he moved on to the next place, all these people that had been opposing him, suddenly they're opposing these little churches. They're persecuting them. They're threatening them. But they begin to tell them, if, if you'll just follow our laws and customs and traditions, we'll let, you, we'll let you into our religion. We'll just kind of bring you into Judaism. And so these guys, they're trying to add religion. They're trying to add tradition and customs to the gospel. And as we saw last week, if you add anything to the gospel, this message of God's grace to us through Christ, it's no longer the gospel. And so as I said last week, these are the original haters. They are following Paul around. They're following the church around, trying to disrupt, trying to ruin these churches, trying to lead people astray. And what they are is they're they're grace haters. 
I mean, grace always has its opponents. It always has its enemies. One of the enemies of grace is performance. There are several, but performance is always the first one to come to mind. Performance is that part of us that says, I can do it. I can prove myself. I can defend myself. And that's what makes me right. And so our whole culture, it it pivots on this idea of performance and, and competition I mean, whether it's getting good grades in school or putting together the perfect resume, even our entertainment is all saturated in performance, you know, pro sports, the voice, like everything's a competition. And honestly, I, I love it. Like, I, I'm like a, a performance competition addict, I admit it. I remember somebody telling me about this new game they were suggesting for, like, community group. They're like, it's great, it's like trivia, but there are no wrong answers. And there's no winner, you just really get to know one another. And I'm thinking, like, what is the point? <laughs> See, I'm not looking to get to know these people, I want to destroy them. But that's the point of a game. Like, it's just running through our veins. We're, we're so immersed in a culture of performance. But it is so destructive when it enters our relationship with God. So destructive when it begins to, to become our concept for how we're saved, for how we, we proceed and grow in the Christian life. Because when you perform well, you become arrogant. When you perform poorly, you're embarrassed to your core. And so it's no way to live. But there's another enemy. It's performance's little brother. It's like quieter, but just as dangerous. And that's comparison. Now, comparison is saying, I may not be perfect, but at least I'm a little bit better than this other person. How much of our lives are swept up in comparison? Again, I find myself constantly comparing myself. Even when I, I feel like I've done something good, it's I try to think of how it might relate to other people or compare to other people. I want to be a really good dad. And then I, you know, if my kids do something that kind of embarrasses me in public, it's like, I feel like I've lost some ranking or been exposed. I mean, there's so much kind of comparison in my mind, whether it's overt or just subtle. The old philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, he said, the normal state of the human heart is to try to build its identity on anything but God. We're constantly trying to to craft for ourselves an image and an identity in relationship to other people. And Tim Keller's got a really good little book called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. He says, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having it more than the next person. We say people are proud about being rich or smart or good looking, but if everyone else became richer, smarter, and better looking than them, there would be nothing to be proud about. And so grace has all of these enemies, performance, comparison, and they're all just poor substitutes. They're all shortcuts to the type of peace and joy that we're trying to find. And the thing is, you can't just uproot these things from your life. Like you can't rid yourself of a performance mentality by trying harder and doing better in like performative spirituality. Like you can only get these things out of your life by replacing them with something stronger and better. We talked about this a lot before. It's the biblical vision that you can only replace one desire with a stronger desire. And the only thing more powerful than these enemies of grace is grace itself, that we are immersed in it, that it it, it overwhelms us, that it strikes the very core of our being and becomes our identity that we have not 
performed perfectly, not even better than others, but it does not matter because Christ accepts us. And so skip the substitute, skip the shortcut or the shadow and go straight to the source, the the substance, the real destination. Only God's grace sets us free. Everything else, performance, comparison, it all traps us, but grace releases us, it sets us free. So what Paul says in verse 15, God called me by his grace and was pleased to reveal his son in me. But that's not all, verse 16, so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. And so this is Paul's mission. This is how God renews him and then what he sends him out to do. And there's three components that we see right here or, or throughout the passage. First, that he preaches the gospel of grace, second to Gentiles, and third, so that all people might praise God. So first, this gospel message, which is simply the grace of God and the good news around it, this is his entire message in Galatians. In chapter two, we're going to read, a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, because by works of the law, no one will be saved. Now, it's not just Galatians, but Paul writes the same thing to the Ephesians. And in Ephesians two, he connects God's grace to God's love. He says, because of God's love for you, he's made a way for you to be saved, not by works, but by grace. There was no other option. And then right after that, Ephesians 3, Paul's like majestic, huge, powerful prayer. He's saying, I'm praying you would have strength with all the saints and all the mighty power of God, not to share the gospel, not to reach the nations, not to change the world, but simply to grasp How wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ? So he's saying the hardest thing to get in your hearts is the grace and love of God. And so that's his message. And the audience is the Gentiles. His specific message was to preach Christ among the non-Jews in the region around him. So Southern Europe and Central Asia. And so he was a pioneer missionary church planner. He would take the gospel to places that it had never been before. He would take a team of people with him. And for years, he would preach the good news, see people join to Christ, start communities, raise up pastors, and then move on. So it's different than like the apostle Peter, who remained in Jerusalem his whole life, shepherding the churches there. And the third thing is that so that all people might praise God. That's the end of the passage, verse 23 and 24. It says, the church has heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praise God because of me. Everything he did was for the praise, for the glory of God. And it's why if you go all the way back to the beginning of the passage in verse 10, he says, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. And so he knows that any any pursuit of others' approval, of getting their their stamp of approval on you, that that people-pleasing mentality is always going to lead to ruin and destruction. To, To lose someone's approval is incredibly difficult, but worse still is to desperately need it in the first place. And notice how Paul says that if I was trying to please people, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. That's because if you desperately need other people's approval of you, you can't really love and serve them. 
You can't really put their interests first because you need them to say something about you and to affirm you and to fill your needs. So the only way to love and serve another person is to be willing to do things that will even lose their approval, to say the hard things or to gently bring them back to Christ. That's so why he says, if we're seeking the approval of others and not God, we're wasting our time. You know, in the same way I've felt this in my own life, I think people pleasing is like an, an indication or like a warning light that I've lost track of the grace of God. Because if I need other people to approve of me or think highly of me or say a certain thing about me, then it's clear that I'm losing track of all that God's grace is for me. And I'm trying to add my own goodness or my own reputation or status or whatever it is on top of that to fill some kind of void that only God's grace can fill. So even people-pleasing, in Paul's phrase, is another enemy or opponent of his grace. So this was Paul's calling, his, his mission. It's the most important thing from our text today, but it would be short-sighted if we just stopped there and didn't ask, what does this mean for us? How does this shape our calling and our mission? And so that's the last thing. And I think there are five specific ways where Paul's calling and mission is meant to be a pattern for us today. And the first one's quite simply to receive and live in the grace of Christ. It says in chapter one, verse six, that we are called to live in the grace of Christ, not just to, to hear it and believe it, not just to, to know it intellectually, but to actually live within it, to let it totally consume us, wash over us, baptize us, to live in the grace of Christ. Now, Saul tells us, or Paul tells us of his background when he was Saul in this passage. He's talking about how he was advancing beyond his peers and all of his you know, ego was being stoked by his good deeds and his performance. He says in Philippians 3 that he was a, from the tribe of Benjamin, educated as a Pharisee, Hebrew of Hebrews. We know from Acts he was also a Roman citizen. So we look at this person, and in that age and in that culture, I mean, Saul really had everything and was everything. Highly educated, deeply moral, a good person, wealthy, tons of freedom. And so if there was like in Jerusalem, a like 40 under 40 list, like Saul is on the cover. And he's not saying all this to brag, but just to say, I went all in on being a good person. Well, the thing is, he's not Saul anymore. Now, the word Saul, that name in Hebrew, it means asked of by God or, or anointed by God, which is like a huge thing to name like a little baby, you know? It's like if you have a tattoo that says the chosen one, it's like you might have an inflated view of self. And so his name is Saul, and it fits his personality. But after his encounter with Jesus, his name is changed to Paul. Paul just means small, like little means humble or, or insignificant, not like physically small, but just like, just like little and not much. So if people are like, what's your name? He's like, not much. <laughs> I mean, it's the humblest, smallest, lowliest name that a person could be given. And so for this Paul, the gospel of grace wasn't just a message. It wasn't just his mission. It was his whole life. It was his very name, his identity. And so throughout this series, we want to continually ask, have you really encountered this grace of God? Have you really so encountered this love of God? 
that you can handle suffering with grace, that you can handle failure with acceptance or handle success with humility? Has it so permeated your life that you can be criticized or mistreated and still enjoy the comfort of God, still be secure in your place in his kingdom? And so receive and live in the grace of Christ. Second, identify your God-given passions, talents, and interests, which is really directly from the passage. Paul was a pioneer missionary church planner, as we said. He loved going into these new lands and doing remarkably difficult things. And for many of you, some of you at least, that will be your calling as well, to go into new places with other people and reach those places with the gospel. That's what church planning is. That's what world missions is. And you'll know that you're called to those things because you want to do it. You'll have the desire to do it. You'll be given the talents and the gifts to do it. And you'll be affirmed by the community to do it. I know so often, and especially when we were starting the church at the beginning, I wish that I was more of a missionary church planter. And I'm realizing about myself, I'm more of a shepherd and teacher. But the more I receive that and embrace that from the Lord, the more I'm free to live in the grace of God. And most of you will be called to invest your lives not only in the church, but also in the marketplace. It was true for Paul as well. But you've taken jobs in hospitals and schools and businesses and law firms and insurance companies and, you know, public works and retail stores and the food industry and wherever it is that you work. And you have been placed there for a reason. That you would use your God-given talents and gifts, your passion to serve other people, to contribute to a thriving society. Whatever the square inch is that God has given you influence over, we're to give it our all every day. Now you might say, well, in comparison to Paul, what I'm doing feels so much smaller or so much basic. And that's the third thing. Embrace the place where God has you. I love in Acts 17, Paul says this. From one man, God made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. So in other words, God has set each person in their exact time and place in all of history. So you have been placed here for a purpose. In the very city where you are, in the neighborhood where you live, with the exact neighbors that you have, in the place where you work, with the co-workers that you are right next to, with the family members that you were born into, you were put in that exact unique place where there is no other person but you for a specific purpose. Now, maybe you didn't see yourself where you are in life. Maybe you didn't see yourself in Columbia at this point in life. You know, many of us didn't. And yet we're here. We have confidence, like straight from the scriptures, that God is the one that has placed us here, not random circumstances, but this is where God has us right now. Until he makes it clear to go somewhere else or do something else, the call is always to be fully present and embrace the life we've been given. Now, if you remember when the Israelites were taken into exile in Babylon, I know you're thinking, remember when the Israelites were taken into exile in Babylon? That was your thought. What God said to them, I mean, it was a brutal culture. It wasn't just uncomfortable and boring. Like it was, it was an oppressive culture that they were forced into far away from their home. God raises up the prophet Jeremiah and says this in 
Jeremiah 29, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters increase in number there. And seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Now, yes, I am biased towards Columbia. I love Columbia. I went away and I came back like I'm, you know, I know that I'm biased. It's where I've chosen to live and I choose it every day. But I know for many of you, you're, you're just here for a bit. Or maybe you're even longing to go somewhere else. Or you can't stand the place where God has put you. Or you're dreaming of a bitter, bigger place with a, a bigger role. Or, or people that have, you know, more impressive lives. Or you're just like trying to up your Instagram game by having like a cooler city in the background. I get it. But the thing is, you need, we all need to be present where we are. To understand this place where God has us and to not miss what God has for us here. Don't let your food get cold looking at someone else's plate, Andy Minio. <laughs> number four, share the gospel of grace. Don't just live in it, but share it. In fact, if you are living in it, this message of grace, it will just flow right out of you. That's how we, we're wired. We talk about the things that we care most about. I mean, it seems like every day I'm telling my wife, like, did you see these new road bike tires that came out? She doesn't care about cycling, but she's like, tell me more. You know, so it's sarcastic. But what we care about the most just sort of comes out of us and we can't help it. And in the same way, the gospel isn't meant to reach us and then stay with us. It's not meant to come to us and then just sort of remain here like a, like a pond that gets muddy and stinky. But instead, it's meant to come to us like a, like a living stream of water to move to us and then to move right through us in a healthy way. And so share how God has renewed you by his grace. That's why we're doing testimonies this fall is to hear from other people how the gospel's renewing them, some of the steps that they're taking to bring the gospel to bear on their own lives. And hopefully that helps you contextualize it for your own life. I was having lunch with an old friend and he's a believer, but he's been out of church. He had a really awful experience with believers. Uh, and I was just telling him how, how God's grace was, was fresh to me in this season and doing this study and how great this community has been just for my own growth and life, how encouraging and life-giving it is here. And he was like speechless for a moment. It caught me off guard. And then he says, like eyes watered up, he's like, you have no idea how good that is to hear. I'm like, so are you going to come though? It's like, can we count on you Sunday? <laughs> or remember the grace of God and let it, let it flow through you. Let it be the thing that, that comes out of my mouth. It often isn't. There's often a million other things I'm thinking about and talking about. But don't miss the opportunity to share God's grace with others. Now, here's the very last thing. In the words of Paul, to pray without ceasing. That's to the Thessalonians. Pray without ceasing. You're thinking you almost went a whole sermon without a prayer. Application is everything going okay. I saw that you worked in cycling. Well, here's prayer. <laughs> How can you get the gospel of grace deeper into your own heart? The answer is prayer. How can you detach from needing the approval of others? The answer is prayer. How can you understand your own God-given gifts and talents, community, and prayer? How do you embrace the place where God's called you? Prayer. How do you find courage to share the gospel with other people? Prayer. 
And so I think of those college students in 1730-something that were sitting there seeking God, not knowing what was going to happen, not asking for something specific, but reading the scriptures, praying for help, asking for renewal, and then God met them there. When he called them, he, he set them on fire. He sent them out. The pattern is the same for them. It's the same for all of us. And we talked about this in membership class yesterday, which was incredible. It was a great time. Uh, we laughed, we cried, prayed. We had Christian sandwiches, a little Chick-fil-A joke. But it was just this beautiful moment of talking about what we aspire to be as a church. We said our lives are powerless apart from prayer. Our churches are powerless apart from prayer. Like the church might keep running and going through the motions for quite some time, but it is powerless apart from prayer. And yet a praying life is a powerful thing, and a praying church is a dangerous thing. We believe that Satan fears a praying church. When Satan sees like a cool, hip church, and he's like, okay. Even a smart church with great theology, okay. You know, a really busy church with a thousand different programs, not a problem. But a praying church is a problem. A praying church is an act of offensive spiritual warfare, a forward movement. That's what Paul says, keep praying, pray without ceasing. A praying church that can live in the grace of Christ, that has a real gospel culture where it's just the air we breathe and the overflow that we share with one another. That is a, is a powerful thing. That is a source of renewal in a given place. And the thing is, we don't just seek God in prayer for something else, but we seek him for God himself. And even if God doesn't answer our prayers, God is still worth seeking. And the, prayer, the point of prayer is to get more of God. It's to get more of his presence, more of his love in our hearts, more of his grace in our minds. It's to see more of who God is and become like him. So Paul was changed forever in this moment. He was changed. He never went back. The rest of his life was deeper and deeper into the life of God's grace. The thing is, for every one of us, that same renewing work of grace is available to each and every one of us in Christ. Let's pray.